This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And this is our 100th episode. Woohoo! Right. It's hard to believe, but it's true. We have been doing this for 100 weeks, almost two years. We'd love to hear from you via any social media that you use. We've certainly enjoyed bringing our best analysis of some of the world's greatest literature. And if you'd like to celebrate with us, forward a favorite episode to a friend. Tell them, for us, for our 100th, that this is your favorite podcast ever. Even if it isn't, we won't tell Joe Rogan. <laughs> well, and I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. And Christy, are we competing with Joe Rogan? I think we are. Uh, we don't have a billion downloads yet, but oh, that doesn't mean we're not in the game. There is that. You know? <laughs> uh, it's crazy that we've been at this for two years. I mean, this is our 40th piece of literature. Episode three in our four-part series of Jane Austen's masterpiece, Emma. In week one, we uh, introduced Regency England and discussed the idea of Emma really as a coming-of-age novel. And what's the word for that? Buildings Roman. <laughs> yes. And we got through the first page, which is par the course for us. And last week we galloped through chapters one through 16. Um, and although leaving much unsaid, there, there's just no way to treat this or any of Austin's books properly no, in there under isn't. an hour. But the focus was in understanding how she uses point of view to develop, among other things, uh, the concept that the Greeks called the virtuous friendship. Uh, we argued that Austin proposes that for us to live our lives most fully and not lonely, it's not just being around people or even people that we like or love. We must be intellectually the equal of those who are closest to us, both in platonic as well as romantic relationships. And to do otherwise is to be in solitude. And this is a book that explores and illustrates those kinds of relationships. Well, exactly. We also discussed the idea 
And this is for the people that really want to geek out on Austin. You mean the Jainites? <laughs> yes. The narrative style she's credited for. Free indirect discourse. And as an apparent outside narrator, takes you in and out of the conscious of her character seamlessly, making you feel and see things from their perspective, likely not even realizing it's happening. That's (laughs) pre-Freud. I know. It sounds weird to describe, and it makes you think, ugh, this is going to be some James Joyce Odyssey of the Mind, but it really isn't. Plus, it's one of those things that by me telling you that it's there and that's what she's doing, you actually can see it. It's like one of those optical illusion pictures that we've seen. The subtlety and irony that you get when you notice the techniques of an artist reminds me when I went when I was in college. We were coming back, backpacking through Europe after studying a semester in Kazakhstan, and we were in Rome. I went to the Sistine Chapel, and I'd always heard it was famous, it's amazing, it's got this art, but I didn't know anything about art. And I still remember to this day, walking in the chapel, looking at the ceiling and going, huh, that's nice. (laughs) (laughs) I bet you're ashamed of that attitude now. Well, I am, but I know that's how people read an Austin novel. I've been back since, and I'll tell you this, I've never gone inside the Sistine Chapel without a guide. I don't know what what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, true. I mean, that's like drinking water through a fire hose. I mean, you're you're going to drink very little, and the rest is just going to fall all over the ground wasted. That's it, exactly. And that's a good... Analogy, Jane Austen is like drinking from a garden hose. You can read the book over and over again, and you'll still see things you didn't notice the last time you read it. Last week, another thing I wanted to accomplish, I hope I did, was attack this notion that this novel is boring, an accusation leveled at me by my father. And one, Gary, I think you somewhat agreed with on the front end. I told both of you I thought we could make it interesting by understanding the heart of the story as something apart from the plot. Not that there isn't a plot, because there is. You could even call it a mystery. But the enjoyment doesn't come from watching what the people do, but comes from loving the characters and listening to the wit. The characters do not serve the plot, but the plot serves to push the characters forward. So fess up, Gary. How do you feel about it, honestly, for the purpose of disclosure? I have to say, Gary had never read this book before. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm very impressed by it, and uh, I uh, really have an appreciation for... uh, the artistic level of Jane Austen's insults. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and like- I have to admit, the more I read it, the more I've enjoyed it. And and actually, uh, I went to listen to it on Audible even, and I started to enjoy it more and more because the clever phrases stood out more. And um, her wit really grows on you the more you read it. And she can be insulting in the most polite way, and she can be satirical, almost sarcastic, and you Barely catch it, which I think is a trait of genius in people that can do that. (laughs) I know, which is why before we get into this fun array of characters, which is the plan for this episode, by the way, besides getting us all the way through chapter 38 and the ball, I want to bring up Austin's severest critic. And I think, although he claims to be a critic, is actually a secret 
Jainite, but doesn't admit it. The illustrious American satirist Mark Twain. Mark Twain expressed unparalleled hatred for Austin. Twain said the definition of an ideal library would be one with none of her books on its shelves. And let me quote, just one omission alone would make a fairly good library out of a library that hadn't the book in it. Oh, well, <laughs> I must quote Shakespeare here and say, me does think he protests too much. I know, so, honestly. Good grief. What was his problem? I'm not sure. I mean, one of his best friends, William Dean Howes, another author and literary critic, threatened to read Austin to him when he was ill because he <laughs> loved him her in. so much. Mm. So you, you think it was just public fun? I kind of do, maybe. Uh, I mean, he says things like this. Her books madden me so that I can't conceal my frenzy. Every time I read Pride and Prejudice, I want to dig her up and beat her over the skull with, an, with her own shin bone. Oh, gosh. <laughs> But he admits to reading her work over and over. Exactly. He wrote an unfinished essay about her that starts out like this. Whenever I take up pride and prejudice or sense and sensibility, I feel like a bartender entering the kingdom of heaven. I mean, I feel as he would probably feel, would almost certainly feel. I am quite sure I know what his sensations would be and his private comments. He would be certain to curl his lips as those ultra-good Presbyterians when feeling self-complacently along because he considered himself better than they. Not at all. They would not be to his taste. That is all. Yet he would secretly be ashamed of himself, secretly angry with himself that this was so. Why? Because barkeepers are like everybody else. It humiliates them to find that there are fine things, great things, admirable things which others can perceive and they cannot. And then he goes on and on in the same essay to just eviscerate her. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like she maddens him. <laughs> and uh, he maybe needed a good podcast to explain her. I think her. so. You think we would, <laughs> I think Mark Twain probably caught all the nuances. Anyway, you know, uh, th this is the same man that said it was easy to quit smoking because he had done it many, many times. <laughs> I know. That's why he's a, I'm just, like you said, I think he's a secret Jainite because they kind of have the same sarcastic, funny sense of humor just in their own way. I would have loved to see these two meet. Today we will explore the character of Frank Churchill, Mrs. Elton, really the entire fictional town of Highbury, and we will see that Austin... I think would have been one of those women who could have bested Twain at his own satire. <laughs> he probably could. She probably could. Excuse me. Well, sadly, uh, that can never happen. I mean, Austin's untimely death occurred 20 years before Twain was born, which I guess if her death had not been so early, they could have met on his European tour. And uh, Christy, we talked about getting into her life. Is it time for that now? It is now or never. Oh, my. We mentioned that she was born on December 16, 1775, a year before the United States, <laughs> the seventh child out of eight to a minister, a wonderful minister, actually. Which I find really kind of humorous since the ministers in her books are not all that awesome. <laughs> well, I know that's true. But don't let that fool you into thinking that Austin wasn't a religious person. At the time she was writing, there were gobs of novels, lots of them religious, in fact. Uh, and lots of them were instructive, moralistic. They were supposed to be, but they came off kind of preachy. 
And she didn't want to fall into that vein. It wasn't the legacy that she wanted. But having said that, it was she was still from a religious family. Her faith was important to her. So was education. And they, they were extremely educated. One of her ancestors actually founded St. John's College in Oxford. So the family was well-educated. They had lots of books. It's part of their culture. But Jane, being a woman... She didn't have the benefits <laughs> of a really good education. Uh, if you've ever read Jane Eyre, that book, we'll do it at some point. But in that book, it talks about the kind of school that I think she went to. And apparently there are lots of these kind of schools up at this period where they would take girls for money, but they would actually basically starve them, neglect them, and abuse them. So Jane, her sister Cassandra, and they had this cousin named Jane Cooper, and they went to one of these, and it was really bad, so bad that when their family found out, Jane's mom, as in Jane Cooper's mom, went to go get them. But while she was there, she contracted typhus fever and died. The cousin did? No, the aunt did. Later on, Jane attended a different girls' school. This one wasn't abusive. But apparently they didn't learn anything either. It was like a play school. So she had got both ends of the spectrum on the educational thing. But fortunately for her, you know, there was enough going on in her home. So she went the all Emily Bronte and learned from her family and by reading. Her dad alone had over 500 volumes and apparently she read most of them. Hmm. Uh, well, don't forget to mention that her dad, even though he had eight children, in order to supplement his income as a minister, took in boys to tutor. So there is that element, a household full of boys. And it seems James spent uh, a lot of time throughout her childhood doing not just the sewing and embroidery that were expected, but did a lot of writing as well as performing in small theater productions for the family. I think so. The most notable piece, of course, is Juvenilia, which she started when she was 11 and wrote on throughout her teenage years. Uh, But the household was very much a whirlwind. And there's lots of fun little dirty details about all these siblings marrying off, having kids, and so forth. And it's interesting and something maybe we'll do if we ever do another Austin book. They're close. They were interactive and stuff like that. Uh, Some priests, some generals or admirals in the Navy. But what I want to highlight are her love interests. And the reason that I want to highlight those beyond the fact that you know, love interests are always interesting, is that Jane Austen wrote rom-coms. At least that's what we call them today. These are absolutely romantic comedies. So the natural question is, what about her love life? Where was her true love? Why didn't she get married? Well, traditionally, uh, as we all know from the King Henry's and Queen Victoria, that marriage was kind of a dynastic institution. And you married to establish a place in society. Uh, If you liked the person, uh, you were lucky. And Austin, uh, it's more than obvious, was uh, of the up-and-coming idea that two people should be about finding compatible companions, liking, maybe even loving each other, which is a contrast. (laughs) course. And we can tell that from her novels. 
But women had a much more difficult time of making something like this happen for themselves because they were not allowed to demonstrate interest openly in a man. It just wasn't done. So the power of the relationship was all, of course, on one side, as Austin painfully illustrates. So the question remains, what about Jane? How did she understand love? It's clear she had some sense of it. Who did she love? Did something go wrong? Well, before I answer that, I do want to make uh, this comment. <laughs> Women are never without power, no matter what age it well, is. Well, I so guess that's true. No matter different. the social structure. Yes. Uh, well, we know almost nothing about her love life, except that she never married. I know. And publicly, you know, Austin's personal life will forever be a secret. She was unknown. Her novels were published anonymously and only were we was it revealed who wrote them after she died. But the real tragedy, not to say that dying early isn't a tragedy, but in terms of For us, the real tragedy is that her sister, Cassandra, destroyed her sister's personal letters that had all the intimate details in them, the ones that overlapped the periods of time where she was known to be interested in a man or anything that would have, I don't know, like a compromising perspective of this image that they wanted the world to have of her. Because after they destroyed all the letters that they wanted to, they were able to craft a narrative of a very proper lady, Jane Austen. Hmm, That sounds remarkably similar to (laughs) Petrarch. Well, kind of it is, but you have to remember, Petrarch crafted his own image, and Jane didn't do that. They crafted her image for her, so we really don't even know if she would have wanted it that way. But there is a bit of scuttlebutt gossip that seeped out. Would you want to know it? (laughs) Of course. I mean... Like Emma, I want the news. The news. Is there any truth to the uh, love interest that Anne Hathaway made famous in a movie becoming Jane, Thomas Lefroy? Yes, there might be. What we know about that relationship, though, is not much more than we get from a few snippets about him and a couple of letters, one to her sister. Let me read the quote. At length the day is come on which I am to flirt my last with Tom Lefroy, and when you receive this, it will be over. My tears flow as I write at the melancholy idea. So, what does that mean? Who knows? The time she knew him, though, we know this, corresponded to the period where she wrote Pride and Prejudice, and there are those that say Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth's relationship is loosely based on that relationship, but I don't know. We do know that after she died, he came down from Ireland to England to pay his respects to her, and he bought the rejection letter for the first version of Pride and Prejudice at an auction. So I don't know. That's, <laughs> I think that's an historical, historically important, her rejection for one of the greatest novelists of all I time. I mean, it's kind of romantic, really. Yeah. <laughs> There's this one time when uh, she did get engaged to a very wealthy family friend. He was six years younger than her, a Mr. Harris Big Wither. Unfortunately, this engagement, although financially profitable, lasted one day. Hmm. (laughs) She broke it off. 
Apparently, she was afflicted with the same conviction as all of her heroines. She should marry for love or not at all. I'm not sure her mother was happy with that idea, though. I think she would have expected... <laughs> Go, girl! <laughs> yes. So there's no true love story at all, then. Well, after you... There's Thomas Lefroy, which I think could have been true love. I don't know. But there's one more story that I find very intriguing and very mysterious. There was this relationship with the younger brother of Williams Wordsworth, the famous poet Williams Wordsworth. Anyway... We don't know much about it at all, uh, except Cassandra, Jane's sister, and of course Cassandra was her closest companion her entire life, told their niece years years after Jane's death that Jane had fallen in love with John Wordsworth and he with her. It seems, and let me use Austin-style language here, they had an understanding. Hmm. <laughs> Unfortunately, not too long after they made their arrangement, he drowned at sea. Uh, and so Jane's letters, again, during this period, were destroyed. So we don't have any first-hand evidence from Jane herself. But there is this correspondence with the niece from her sister years later. So... It's a romance, but a mysterious one. Mm. It's kind of sad, really. Uh, thinking of one of the world's greatest writers of romance came so close to true love and then had it taken away in the most tragic way. Oh, I know. Uh, and after reading her books, it's like, I don't know, this is what I thought. It's like she had these romances and she wanted to rewrite the endings to make them happy, but... I don't know. That is entirely my speculation. Oh, well, of course. I mean, we're never going to know. But do you think there's a particular Austin character that is really Jane's personality? I know. I've thought about that. And I actually looked for an answer on that at one point. And my answer is, I don't really think so. When I read about her real life, she comes across as very vivacious and lively. She loved to dance. She attended balls. And there's all these stories about her being so headstrong. There's a quote about her, and this is when she was older. They called her a poker of whom everyone was afraid. <laughs> <laughs> However, after she died, you know, we get this different picture about her being respectable, almost soft-spoken. So when I read her books, you know... Jane's heroines are both. And so I think maybe there's a little bit of her included in all of her, her heroines, including Emma. But, you know, we've got to wrap it up. There's so much we could say about her life, but I do want to get to Emma. So let's finish it out by saying that after, so her dad was a minister. He lived with her. She lived with him really her entire life. He retired from his church and they moved to Bath the place that Mrs. Elton raves about. Uh, but her dad was to die somewhat unexpectedly after, a few years after they had moved there. So she, her mom, and her sister became displaced people and were forced to kind of move around, you know, living with people, having no money. This period of her life, she didn't write, clearly was very miserable but eventually they landed in a cottage that her brother paid for in a village called Chowton. And it was here in that village or in that town 
that Jane would live really for the rest of her life, which was only going to be eight more years. And it was in that house that she wrote Emma in 1814. Three years after Emma, by the way, she would die in Winchester, where she had, and she didn't live in Winchester, except that's where she had to go to see the doctor. The conventional wisdom for many years was that she died of Addison's disease, which, by the way, is the same disease that JFK had. But, you know, if you look at more recent research, that's kind of been thrown out, and it's a lot of speculation what she died of. We do know for sure that it must have been horribly painful because when they asked her what her last wishes were to be, this is so sad. Let me quote, I want nothing but death. Wow. So what we know of her really is her books and in the worlds that she created. I really think that's true. And in our case, the world is Highbury, (laughs) the small town where everyone goes to Ford's once a day, if they can, the place where Harriet can accidentally run into Robert Martin and his sisters and Frank Churchill can buy gloves, a place where there's a local venue called the Crown Hall, which used to have great dances, but now it's where the men go to play whist, a card game that kind of reminds me of Canasta. The whole town can make judgments about the new preacher's wife from the pew. It really kind of sounds to me a lot like the life I knew when I lived in Wynn, Arkansas. And when there is a place where people go once a day called Walmart. Not very similar to Highbury. (laughs) Just for social reasons, maybe to pick up something or under. And on Sunday, most people will attend church, although there's more than one, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, or Catholic. And then after church, you have to decide, will you be going to Mazio's or Kelly's? One would have pizza, the other home-style food for lunch, and either way, you're bound to see somebody you know. So it's kind of that place. That sounds like my hometown of of Lawson, except we weren't even big enough for a Walmart (laughs) or a traffic light, literally. (laughs) But I also uh, enjoyed the multiple references Austin throws in about the game of whist. And it's funny that Mr. Elton is best at it. He likes to play games with strategy and uh, apparently cards as well as life. (laughs) Exactly. And just as a point of note, if you were to notice, all the games in Emma by design are games of strategy, backgammon, quadrille, but especially whisk, which you'll also notice even Mr. Woodhouse plays. (laughs) Well, and of course, in in the world of hybrid, everyone knows everyone's business. And I know this isn't until the end, so spoiler, but uh, but it's very funny and lighthearted. Uh, when Knightley wants to get word out about his engagement, he tells Mr. Weston, who tells Jane Fairfax, who lives with Miss Bates, who tells Mrs. Cole, Mrs. Perry, and Mrs. Elton, and there you go, the word is out. The, the peanut gallery <laughs> has been notified. The 1800 version of Facebook has been activated. Oh, yeah, and they all know how much everyone makes and is worth, too. <laughs> I've noticed that in Jane Austen's work. There's a lot of discussion about uh, yearly income. Well, everything is lighthearted, but also kind of full of mischief. And when we last left Highbury, Emma was musing over Mr. Elton daring to propose to her, and she disdained him for it. 
in retrospect, maybe he wasn't the good strategician as he mm, thought he was. I think was. he misread the room a little on that one. Yes. But, you know, his options are limited, and he is looking to improve. That was Chapter 16. In Chapter 17, Mr. Elton writes a letter to Mr. Woodhouse. He addressed it to Mr. Woodhouse, saying that he was going to Bath to spend a few weeks Mr. Woodhouse, totally oblivious, didn't even notice it as the insult that it was to Emma because he's not addressing it, including Emma. And of course, it is in Bath that Mr. Elton meets Miss Augusta Hawkins, who will become the new Mrs. Elton, a couple that is so fun to laugh at, so ridiculous, almost characters of something we are all so familiar with wherever we live in the world. Those people who pretend to be wealthier or more important than they really are. These are the worst sort of people anywhere. And so from volume two, we transition from the love triangle, Elton, Harriet, Emma, to this new love triangle, Frank Churchill, Jane Fairfax, and Emma. And all of this lands us squarely uh, really into a discussion of the social class system again that totally dominates everything during a Regency period. But it's so very different than how we live in America today, so it's hard to relate. And Harbury is not a fancy town, so in that regard, you can't think of all the British shows involving royals. I mean, the Woodhouses and the Knightleys were not titled, although they have been in Highbury for several generations, and they're from ancient families. Uh, so they're at the top of the social ladder. Mr. Weston is next because he's born of a respectable family for the last two or three generations. That sounds long to me, two or three generations. That's the entire yeah. history of the United States at this point. <laughs> well, it gets you something. Um, as you go down, of course, we're going to get uh, to this family called the Coles. And the Coles are successful business owners. They have the second nicest house in town after Emma's house. Uh, however, they have only recently become wealthy. And as such, during this section of the novel, there is a discussion of them having a party that at first... Emma doesn't want to attend because they are not good enough for her. <laughs> Until they don't invite her. <laughs> oh, no, okay. Then she decides that, you know, she can condescend to that level. <laughs> yes, but you see, they're humble. Uh, in other words, they don't, they don't pretend to be as good as the older established families. So that elevates them above the lowest of the low. Well, and who might be the lowest <laughs> of the low? <laughs> Let's call them the pretenders. Oh, dear. Uh, Mrs. Elton falls in this category. Uh, her sister, who she brags on all the time, is definitely nouveau riche, insufferable nouveau riche. And she's only lived in her house 11 years. Oh, my. I've never lived in a house 11 years. <laughs> well, then clearly you don't belong in good society in Highbury. Oh, but I think I do. Why do you say that? Well, because I have quality of the mind. <laughs> oh, is that enough? Well, and I have... Humility, like the coals. <laughs> hmm. There's some irony for you. You're proud of your humility. I think so. Uh, but getting back to the social classes, uh, that's where a love triangle fiasco occurs. A problem. There is this problem because they are flying in the face of the social class system. Mr. Weston has a son 
And this is where I think this world kind of gets confusing. That was raised by his first wife's brother, a Captain Churchill with no children of his own, but wealthy. So the Churchills adopted Frank, and that made Frank change his name. So now Frank Churchill, whose father is not named Churchill, but Weston, is richer and higher up on the social ladder than his own father. Of course. I mean, that's a good thing. Uh, but the problem arises because Captain Churchill's wife is um, what is called an upstart. An upstart. <laughs> she has, and I'll quote, no fair pretense of family or blood. And in, in other words, she was one of those lucky few who was a nobody but married money. And as we all know, even today, those kinds of people can can be the worst snobs of all. Oh, absolutely. And according to the text, as a result, she has out Churchilled them all, <laughs> which is a funny turn of phrase uh, to tell us that she was more snobby with less reason than any other member of the family. Um, and as a result, Frank Churchill must marry well. And it would be an embarrassment otherwise. And it's clear that if he doesn't, he'll be disinherited. So says the upstart. And no one else must be allowed to be one. Uh, thus the plot twist, because unspeknown to the entire town of Highbury until after the climax of the novel, Frank Churchill has fallen in love and convinced the highly respectable, beautiful, and accomplished orphan who he met in a resort town, Jane Fairfax, to be secretly engaged to him. But she's a girl with no money. Jane is not the match envisioned by the great upstart Mrs. Churchill. So, the love affair must be concealed. Jane and Frank, it appears, contrive to see each other in Highbury, but they have to create a charade. We've seen that word before. Mm -hmm. Their own scheme. So, she plans on visiting her aunt and grandmother because of her health. He will visit his biological father and his stepmother, who he's never met, although they don't use that term stepmother in the book. She's referred to as his mother-in-law. But in order to keep people from suspecting the engagement, Frank flirts endlessly with Emma, contriving more and more reasons to be with Emma to counteract all the time he's spending with Jane. This, of course, really hurts Jane's feelings to the point that it makes her physically ill. And even though Frank does favor Jane over Emma to the point of secretly sending her a pianoforte, the going back and forth between Emma and Frank and then Jane and Knightley, who is also very jealous, adds a lot of drama that goes on for several chapters. Well, that's what makes it the story <laughs> that it is. And speaking of pianoforte... I don't know if uh, our listeners noticed in the opening music, but our own Christy Shriver <laughs> can play a respectable piano forte, and she does so at the beginning of our episodes for the sections on <laughs> on Emma, and she had to dig out some really old piano books to play that. I know, it's true, but I have to say my piano playing is closer to the medi mediocrity of Emma's than the excellent of Jane Fairfax. <laughs> Oh, don't sell yourself short. I, I I think you would have been a suitable candidate for matrimony for the period. <laughs> oh, dear. I don't know. I don't know how many pounds my parents would have had to scrape up. And, of course, as we know, that does matter. Remember, my dad's a clergyman, although thankfully not in the vein of a Mr. Elton, I will say. But back to Frank. I do want to point out 
which is a narrative oddity to me, but one that I think matters, especially in light of all that I've said about Jane Austen, loving to get in the heads of our people, that she goes to a lot of trouble, really an awful lot of trouble, to keep us as readers out of the head of Frank Churchill. He is introduced and speaks primarily through letters. That's kind of a motif, by the way, that she uses throughout the book with various people. But Frank Churchill communicates in large part, especially when we get to the end with his gigantic disclosure letter, kind of in this third voice. When we get our first description of him in chapter 23, it's very precursory and it's through Emma's eyes. Let me quote. He presented to her and she did not think too much had been said in his praise. He was a very good looking young man, height and air address, all were unexceptional, and his countenance had a great deal of the spirit and liveliness of his father's. He looked quite sensible. She goes on to suggest that she wanted to get a note to get to know him. She was quite sure he came to Highbury intending to meet her, and probably more importantly, Emma really feels that Mrs. Weston wants her and Frank Churchill to get together. But the rest of what we know about Mr. Churchill will come from watching him interact with Emma and trying to avoid being noticed, paying attention to Jane. We don't see anything really from his perspective. And what we learn is that in many ways, he's kind of hapless. <laughs> really is. Uh, he almost even confesses that what, that what he's up to to Emma. And um, even though Mr. Knightley may be uh, presumptuous in judging him to be a scoundrel in chapter 19, I mean, after all the fussing and strangeness at the Bateses and then at the Coles and finally at the ball, we, we likely don't trust Frank Churchill either. And Jane Austen has trained us to trust Mr. Knightley just as Emma does. And in fact, he is the voice of Austin, I am told. <laughs> I told you that. It's true, yeah. sort of, but not totally, because Austin has also, by this point in the story, trained us to suspect all of her characters' perspectives, and even Knightley's motives must be checked. And the careful reader, by this point, may notice that Knightley seems a little too hard on Frank Churchill too soon. And although we can't disagree with the points he's making, we find Knightley to be a very humane and gracious person almost to everyone else. So it's out of character for him not to want to be gracious to this guy. Unless... He has a reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, Mr. Knightley is very dutiful and gracious to the point that there's a lot said to, about him giving Mrs. Bates all of his apples. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Literally. Well, uh, the point Knightley makes in Chapter 19 is that Frank Churchill's words don't always match up with his behavior, which is a very important thing. He's always claiming he can't visit his dad in his letters. But Knightley knows in real life that no matter what they say, men, especially rich men, do what they want. And excuses are just that. They're excuses. And if it's not a lie, and exactly as he says, that he can't leave because his stepmother won't let him, well, that's no better uh, and maybe even worse. He's ruled by a stepmother that he can't spare a weekend to ride up to visit his dad and meet his new stepmother. I mean, that's weird, too. Well, to your point, Knightley says something that really stands out to me. And it stands out because, and I'll revisit this at length next week, I think it applies to Emma more than anyone else in this book. He says this, 
Real men always are ruled by duty. This point, most readers may question, actually, but still find noble. And I'm going to argue that Emma, in this book, is the manliest man in the story. Hmm. <laughs> anyway, that aside, just put it in your mind for now. It seems Frank gets Mrs. Weston to adore him through letters by flattering her. He gets Mrs. Bates to like him by fixing her glasses. He gets Emma to like him by paying attention to her. We, however, watch his charade with Emma. And yes, we keep using that word because that's what Elton and Emma were playing at the first. And this, I think, kind of mimics that. But while we watch the game, we also hear Knightley's cautionary words in our minds before Frank Churchill rides into town. This might be a good time to point out, by the way, and this isn't a big deal, but Jane Austen loves a good pun. And I think there was a pun there with the concept of the charade. And we don't have time to point out all the puns, but if you read this book, you could certainly find them. You know, Frank isn't Frank, and Knightley is so Knightley. Uh, (laughs) Did you get it? (laughs) Yeah, I get it. And Jane is fair. Uh, I might add, uh, does Emma have a wooden house? (laughs) Well, it's in the woods. (laughs) But, you know, I think there's something to that name, too. Moving on, we don't have time to talk about all of this. I do want to get to Jane Fairfax because, like Frank, she does have this in common. She also was adopted by a rich family. Yeah, but her situation is different. The family who adopted her, uh, the Campbells, aren't infinitely wealthy, and they have a daughter. So all the money for the dowry goes to their biological daughter, Although Jane doesn't really seem to resent this. Yes, uh, and that's kind of what the brouhaha has been about with Mr. and Mrs. Dixon. And when I first read this, I was like, who are they? They had just recently gotten married. I didn't realize that that was the Campbell's daughter. In other words, the girl that Jane was raised with. But apparently, Mrs. Dixon is ugly. And so, you know, they make a big deal about this because this back and forth between Emma and Frank seemed to suggest that Mr. Dixon probably likes Jane because she's prettier and that's why they sent this piano forte. Sheer gossip. Ah, well, what else you got to do? I mean, <laughs> so the incident really is mean on the part of Frank. It so is. To throw Jane under the bus like that, especially if he really does love her. And this doesn't seem in the spirit of protecting one's future wife. No, I don't think it is. It seems immature. And I guess that's really kind of how Frank comes across. He's selfish. He's insincere. Pretty much the whole way through the book, only redeeming himself by this giant letter at the end. And also, people seem to forgive him. But now that we're still in the middle of the story, his being willing to badmouth Jane suits Emma at the time Mm. because she is an incurable snob and she's jealous. In fact, she's extremely jealous of the talented and beautiful Jane Fairfax. She is jealous of that kind of sweet, sad, reserved and Basically perfect Jane. Emma's nemesis. Oh, okay. (laughs) You know, Austin is creating a parallel relationship, and it's one of those things that it's interesting to look at. Uh, And it's kind of where the comedy is going to reside. We have this hidden love, which, another spoiler, we're going to see emerge Emma and Knightley 
which parallels this secret love of Frank and Jane. Well, and of course, this is it is where all the comedy resides. I mean, Emma's blindness to Jane is actually a result of her blindness to herself. And uh, Jane is Emma's equal and, in fact, pretty much her superior at everything except social status. I agree. And Austin never misses an opportunity to emphasize how desirable their friendship is in the eyes of all of their friends and relatives. Isabella urges Emma in that direction, and so does Knightley. Poor Jane lives in cramped quarters with an aunt who won't ever shut her mouth, and she will, as we will see, let me quote, hire out her intellect as a governess, as she says. Jane, as a member of the Campbell family, grew up in a healthy lifestyle. She was taught to be a woman of grace, duty, and nobility, which will serve to be a great governess because she can't exercise it for herself. But the problem with agreeing to a secret engagement with Frank Churchill is that she's compromising who she is as a person. All this secrecy and doubleness is outside of her character. She feels guilty for keeping this secret. She's ashamed of it. And as a result, she becomes a very secretive and reserved person. Ultimately, she makes herself physically ill and she's forced to break off the engagement completely. And Emma, of course, the social butterfly, is continuously (laughs) um, irked by Jane's reserve. In uh, chapter 20, and of course, we're in Emma's mind now, but we're looking at Jane, and let me quote this, Emma was sorry. To have to pay civilities to a person she did not like through these three long months. To be always doing more than she wished and less than she ought. (laughs) I mean, that's a great line. How many times are we stuck in that kind of disagreeable place? I know. You don't want to do anything, but the little that you do, you resent, and it's not enough anyway. It's true. Here's another line. Why she did not like Jane Fairfax might be a difficult question to answer. Mr. Knightley had once told her it was because she saw in her the really accomplished young woman, which she wanted to be herself. And though that accusation had been eagerly refuted at the time, there were moments of self-examination in which her conscience could not quite acquit her. She could never get acquainted with her. She did not know how it was, but there was such coldness and reserve, such apparent indifference whether she pleased or not. And then her aunt was such an eternal talker, and she was made such a fuss over by everybody, and it had always imagined that they were to be intimate because their ages were the same. Everybody had supposed they must be so fond of each other. These were her reasons she had no better. Hmm. <laughs> what Emma doesn't realize herself, and really we as readers don't quite understand at this point yet, is that Emma and Jane are a lot more alike than Emma really understands. Emma is also trapped. She's strapped by duty, but her duty is to her father, for whom marriage is completely out of the question for her. Her loyalty to her father won't allow her to leave him. We'll explain why next week. But she cannot allow herself to fall in love. To do so would be to put herself in the same miserable situation that Jane actually is in. Good 
grief. (laughs) So she becomes a matchmaking busybody for everybody else in the community as a way really to kind of disengage her own feelings for nightly. Hmm. I think so. And this works well for her until a little plot twisting by Jane Austen pushes all this out into the open. So that's our community. All the fun secondary figures to our darling heroine provide the humor and impetus for us to watch Emma grow up. And Emma, just as for all of us, growing up is not an absolute state that comes from one single moment of insight. Instead, it's an erratic process, one solution to fresh problems, highs punctuated by lows, steps forward, two steps back, As the saying goes, Emma swears off matchmaking. She picks on sweet Jane, among other ways, by suggesting that Mr. Dixon sent her the piano forte. She snubs the coals. She convinces herself that Frank is in love with her and imagines all the ways she would nobly turn him down. And ironically, it is through the snooty Mrs. Augusta Elton and all of her ridiculous meddling, as well as that of her husband, Mr. Elton, who Augusta annoyingly constantly refers to, my lord and master. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) maybe you should try that. (laughs) Uh Uh-uh. She's always talking in Italian, too. Anyway, this is how Austin brings out the truth for Jane and Emma both. So, is Augusta a pun because she thinks she's like Augustus Caesar? (laughs) I really think it might be something like that. Emma says that Mrs. Elton wants to be wiser and wittier than all the world, but you will notice that it is Mr. and Mrs. Elton that do push our main characters to places of awakening. So, all this talk, it's time to join our friends at the ball in chapter 38. Gary, tell us about Regency balls, carriages, and dancing. Oh, <laughs> infinitely interesting. I know it is. Uh, well, of course, as we see in chapter 38, it starts with everyone arriving in carriages. And of course, uh, Mrs. Elton, who uh, had committed to bringing Jane and the Bates, forgot them. <sighs> but like today, vehicles are markers of status. And so Mrs. Elton has already made much of the fact that her sister has not one, but two carriages. <laughs> uh, then we move to all the fuss about dance partners. And uh, the way it worked is that each dance was really a group dance, I guess, early version of square dancing or yeah. line. Anyway, it could take anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes. Uh, there would be long lines of the couples with dance moves that you know really weren't complicated to do, but they would be complicated to remember. And uh, it'd be something to learn ahead of time. And we've all seen the movies where the couples hold hands and go up the line of dances to the end. And everyone could see who you were dancing with. And if you danced with the same person for more than one or two dances, you're basically announcing to the world that you're interested in each other, setting all the gossip to fire (laughs) at the party. Well, and of course, at this time, all the drama from this ball at the beginning centers around the Eltons, of course. Mrs. Elton just assumed that this ball was being given in her honor. 
So although Frank had committed to dancing the first dance with Emma, when this all kind of becomes apparent, his father makes him renege and dance with Mrs. Elton to honor her in the way that she's expected to be honored. Hmm. But the real drama arises when there's an opportunity to inflict pain on Emma vicariously through Harriet. There are two more dances before supper, and Harriet is the only girl without a dance partner. As we see the action unfold through Emma's eyes, we see that Mr. Elton, who could have dodged the whole scene if he wanted to by going into the other room to play cards, appears to deliberately walk in front of the eligible dance partners, all of whom are committed except Harriet. He walks in front of Harriet, talks to people around Harriet, but ignores the fact that she doesn't have a partner. It seems that Mrs. Elton has instigated her husband to spurn Harriet publicly. He's already done it once. However, Knightley, who watches all of this unfold, swoops in and rescues sweet Harriet by dancing with her, making, as Emma states, Mr. Elton look very foolish and he can retreat to the card game room. After supper... Emma and Knightley have a private moment to talk about that craziness that just happened. And I think the discussion between the two of them is a wonderful way to end this episode and set us up for the truly delightful and really Shakespearean-like comedic ending that we're going to see next week. Per our usual, if you will read Mr. Knightley, I will read Emma. (laughs) I'll I'll do my best with my best Highbury accent. (laughs) They aimed at wounding more than Harriet. Emma, why is it that they are your enemies? He looked with smiling penetration and on receiving no answer added, She ought not to be angry with you. I suspect whatever he may be. To that surmise, you say nothing, of course, but confess, Emma, that you did want him to marry Harriet. I did, and they cannot forgive me. He shook his head, but there was a smile of indulgence with it, and he only said, I shall not scold you. I leave you with your own reflections. Can you trust me with such flatterers? Does my vain spirit ever tell me I am wrong? Not your vain spirit, but your serious spirit. If one leads you wrong, I'm sure the other tells you of it. I do own myself to have been completely mistaken in Mr. Elton. There is a littleness about him which you discovered and which I did not, and I was fully convinced as his being in love with Harriet. It was through a series of strange blunders. And in return for your acknowledging so much, I will do you the justice to say that you would have chosen for him better than he has chosen for himself. Harriet Smith has some first-rate qualities, which Mrs. Elton is totally without. An unpretending, single-minded, artless girl, infinitely to be preferred by any man (laughs) of sense and taste to such a woman as Mrs. Elton. I found Harriet more conversable than I expected. Emma was extremely gratified. They were interrupted by the bustle of Mr. Weston calling on everybody to begin dancing. Come, Miss Woodhouse, Miss Otway, Miss Fairfax, what are you all doing? Come, Emma, set your companions the example. Everybody is lazy. Everybody is asleep. I am ready whenever I am wanted. Who were you going to dance with? She hesitated a moment and then replied, With you, if you will ask me. Will you? Indeed, I will. 
You have shown that you can dance, and you know we are not really so much brother and sister as to make it at all improper. Brother and sister, no indeed. And so we end this week's discussion and our 100th episode with Emma and Knightley at the ball. Um, There could be worse places to be. So if you enjoy our work, please support us by taking a minute to tell a friend about our podcast. Even send them a link to an episode and stop in to see us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. You know the whole social media circus out there. Uh, And so we're up in our game this year and working on our marketing and social media, all of which is outside of our comfort zone. So thank you for your support and for your help in helping us do what we love. Connect out there in the world with those who want to know how to love lit. Peace out. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.